First Peter chapter five, turn there with me. First Peter chapter five, coming into this year, which is over halfway done. My goodness, time is moving. The Lord spoke to us out of this verse in first Peter chapter five. And I believe we need to go back over it today. Look at it again. Stir ourselves up about it. First Peter chapter five, verse 10 says, may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, say these words with me, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Say it again. Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. We got a word from the Lord about this year and our lives beyond this year, that this is the work that the God of all grace was going to begin doing in this church, in your life, in mine, that he was going to begin going to work to perfect and establish and strengthen and settle us. Let me ask you, church, how you doing? Better than ever. Remember, that's our answer to the question. And I got to tell you how much I love hearing it around town, walking into a store, seeing, seeing somebody from the church. I say, how you doing? They say, better than ever. Well, what does that mean? We're basing that on this word that when God has gone to work in your life, perfecting you, establishing, strengthening, and settling you, well, whatever you were before, after this work, you're better than you've ever been. And I believe we're seeing it. You believe we're seeing it in our lives? We spent, I don't know, nine or 10 weeks talking about what it meant to be perfected. I know many of you were with us in that. Um, even if you were here, let me encourage you, go back and listen to some of that again. The Lord shared some amazing things with us about what it meant to be perfected. What does the Bible mean when it uses this word perfected? Because so many people, you hear it and maybe you've said it. I know I have in times past. Well, nobody's perfect. And that's the excuse people go to when they've messed up and they know it. They ruin a good apology with this statement right here. But you know, nobody's perfect. But we decided as a church family, we're going to be done saying that. Right? We're done saying that for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's not true. Jesus is perfect. So you can't say nobody is. He is. And number two, we're going to quit using that as an excuse. And we're going to look to the scriptures to define for us what perfect really means. And we found out over a number of weeks that it actually means developed, completed. It means brought to a place of maturity. Now, you can't say nobody's mature. You can say a lot of people aren't. <laughs> but the scripture tells us how to come to a place of full-grown spiritual adulthood to the place where we have grown into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's maturity. And according to the word, that's perfection. Now, what I had on my heart to encourage you with this morning before we move on from it is even if you think you're not seeing that yet, well, a couple of things. Don't be quick to believe it's not happening. He said he's doing that for us. Do you believe that word? I believe that word. And if he's given us that word from his word and by his spirit, you can believe it's happening. There is a perfecting taking place in your life. 
But in light of what it means growing up, developing, maturing, being complete, you don't always see growth as it's happening. Our little ones, Justice is 12, Jesse just turned nine. I feel like they've just recently hit a growth spurt. I know they have. I know Justice has. Why? Because the shoes I just bought <laughs> do not fit. Buddy, why don't you wear those shoes? They don't fit. I just bought them. I know. He's growing. But our, you know, I've seen this over the years. When, you, when you've got family who live in a different state and you get together once or twice a year, what's the first thing they say when they see your kids? They've grown so much. I can't believe how much you've grown. You have grown so much. Now, when you're the parent living in the house with them all the time, you don't always see that growth. It's slower to you. It's, it's more methodical and progressive. But there are other people, when the last time they saw them, they were down here. And the next time they saw them, they were up here. That growth is very visible. What am I telling you? You're growing even if you don't know it. And there will come a time when that growth that is taking place is going to start showing up. Don't let go of this word. This God of all grace is perfecting us. Amen? And I got stirred up about something uh, late last night, early this morning, thinking about this, this scripture again and just reminding myself of, of what I'm expecting him to do in my life, what I'm expecting him to do in my family and in this church. And while we started with that perfecting, what's the next thing he talked about? An establishing. The God of all grace is perfecting and what else? Establishing. Now, it's okay to talk back to me this morning. That's all right. Help me preach this, won't you? Won't you help me? <laughs> He's establishing us. Well, what does it mean to be established? It sounds like a good word, for sure. But again, some of these things, uh, you're going to have to go back and let the Bible define them for you. You got to be careful about taking biblical principles and letting common worldly knowledge define for you things that only the Bible can define. What does it mean to be established? Well, it can mean to be settled, but he talks about that later in the verse, and they're two distinct things. It can mean to be, to be fixed. There's one definition of it that I really like, and I believe it's what the Lord's saying to us. To be established is to turn resolutely in a certain direction. Listen to every word of that. To turn resolutely in a certain direction. And then the implication there is that you take that direction. Now, we're pressing towards a life that's better than ever. So what's the difference between turning resolutely in a certain direction and taking that direction? What's the opposite of that? Wandering, wandering, aimlessly bouncing around. And do you realize that is a pretty good description of the way most people live life on this earth? Trying this, trying that. They bounce around a little bit this way. When that doesn't work, they back up, try something else. Change their major half a dozen times. Why? Looking 
looking for direction, looking for, looking for some, some sort of direction to tell them what to do and where to go. And you get to the point where you just, you feel for people. I've said it I don't know how many times in my life. I don't get it. I don't get how anybody lives without the Holy Ghost. I don't understand it. I don't understand how you go through hard times without the word. I don't understand how you face challenges without the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I don't get it. And I certainly don't get how anybody makes any kind of decision with any level of confidence without having some sort of direction that's bigger than your own head. That comes from some higher place, some higher authority than your own smarts. Come on, are you listening to me? We've got something. I call it an unfair advantage over the rest of this world. We've got the Holy Ghost, the greater one, glory to God. Greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. You've got access to information if you learn how to draw it up out of your heart. And quit just looking to your head. And that's the information that you need to turn resolutely in a certain direction and take that direction. I'm done wondering. I'm done wandering. I'm done bouncing around through this life. This is my direction. This is the way I'm going. And bless God, God goes before me. He goes beside me. He surrounds me. Who's clapping? I'll talk to you today. Oh, come on, we're going to get there. I learned this when I started learning how to fly airplanes. I, w- when you take off out of a particular airport, um, there's airports scattered all over this nation. Some of them are in rural areas where there's not a lot of traffic, not a lot going on. But then you've got high traffic areas. You've got Denver. That would be a high traffic area. Uh, Certainly Dallas, Chicago, New York, L.A. These would be high traffic, high volume areas. And this little airport, one I learned to fly out of, then later the one we based our uh, ministry airplane out of, there'd be times we'd take off out of the airport and maybe we're going, you know, north and east to preach somewhere. But we take off on a runway heading of 1718, that's due south. Air traffic control who sees the big picture, they might leave you on that heading for quite a while. Even though your destination is the opposite direction. They might tell you stay on this heading or they might tell you turn, turn left to a heading of 2-7 or turn right to a heading of 0-9 and, and it's like, well, I don't want to go 0-9. I need to go 3-6. That, that's north. I'm trying to go that way. And there's a phase as you're taking off, a phase of flight where you're, you could go two, three, four different directions based on any number of variables. But there comes a point in the progress of your flight that you're going to hear some instructions from air traffic control. And they're going to tell you, turn to your heading, your desired heading, and establish on course. Establish on course. In other words, turn the direction that you've been trying to go this whole time. And stay on it. Turn in that direction. And stay on it. And man when I was first learning to fly. I was, I was not confident with this. Things were not clicking for me. Things were not making sense for me. 
And when you're first learning, you don't do a whole lot of instrument flying. You, you learn the basic headings. You, you learn to read the instruments, but you're not dependent on them. The, they're, doing, they're teaching you what's called VFR, visual flight rules. And you've got a map that, that has ground points. And, and, and you've you're, got to be able to see outside the airplane. You can't fly VFR on a cloudy day. You've got to be able to see. And you're using this map that's got... Got points along the ground to, to make sure you're still headed in the right place. There's rivers and lakes and, and highways and roads that you can look at on this map. Well, I, I totally lacked confidence. I'd have to do these cross-country trips. And I would take off out of this airport, Meacham Field, Fort Worth, Texas. And Meacham Field was located right on Highway 287. And I had to do cross-country trips to gain hours and gain time and get the rating and a cross-country trip, I think it had to constitute of uh, one, or leg more, one leg or more that had was 50 nautical miles, something like that. Well, I found an airport in Bowie, Texas, that was something like 50 miles straight up Highway 287. <laughs> so I'd take off out of Meacham Field, find 287, and basically drive <laughs> to Bowie, I did not trust my navigational abilities. I didn't trust. I was nervous. I was scared. And I did that, I don't know how many times. I fly to Bowie and back. My instructor would be there because I'm flying solo. And he's like, how's the trip? Great, thanks. Got to go. You know, I'm not, not telling him, look, dude, I'm not learning anything. I don't like this. Well, one day I finally was like, okay, you can't fly to this airport your whole life. There are other places you'll need to go. And so I decided I'm going to pick three airports and I'm going to and make it a, a three-leg trip back to home. I'm telling you, 30 minutes into that flight, I don't know where I am. <laughs> Nothing's looking right. The map and the outside are different. Sweat the size of baseballs is dripping down my back. Because what are you going to do? Pull over? Excuse me. Can you tell me how to get back to 287, please? What are you going to do, right? And the day before, I had done a little bit of training with a pilot friend of ours. And he was teaching me how to read these instruments and dial in these frequencies. And I won't explain the whole thing, but it was basically, here's how you triangulate your position. If you ever get lost, not knowing the very next day, I'm going to be so lost. And he's like, so all you got to do is tune in this it's called a VOR and it sends out a signal and it'll tell you what radial you're on and then tune in this one and it'll tell you what radial you're on and the intersection of those radials, that's where you are. So I'm, I'm up there flying, trying to do all this at the same time and I don't know what happened, but my lines look like this. I'm like, how am I getting parallel lines? You know what I'm doing that whole time? Wandering, wandering. And finally, I mean, obviously I made it home. Uh, but you, you call air traffic control and you do your best not to be like, go God, I'm lost. Please tell me where. You know, you just give them your, your tail number three, nine, Charlie Lima. Uh, can I get vectors please? So, uh, Meacham field and they sounds like, you know what you're doing and they give you a radio. You turn to that direction and air traffic control gave me a heading to fly that took me where I needed to go. You turn in that direction and don't make any other turns. And it got me home. And that was the day my flight instructor was like, hey, how'd it go? And I was like, great, thanks, see you, gotta go. Oh man, it shook me up. 
And I can't help but think there are vast majorities of people living like that. No resolute direction. Just not established on any course to speak of. Bouncing around, trying to figure stuff out. But the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered, remember we talked all about that, after you have submitted, after you have resisted the devil, after you've endured the persecution that goes along with being a believer, he's at work in you all the time, perfecting and establishing you, giving you a direction to turn in, amen, that you don't have to turn from. Glory to God. I've been spending some time just looking at verses that have to do with this. I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 4 with me. And we'll just begin this today. We may not get to all of it, but you're coming back. Proverbs chapter 4. I want to read verse 26 and 27, but then I want to go back and, and put some context around it. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Listen to what it says. He says, ponder the path of your feet. Ponder the path of your feet. What does that mean? Just think about it. Think about the direction you're going in. Think about the road you're on. Think about what's happening to you while you're on this road. Think about where this road is taking you. Think about what you're going to find when you get there. Ponder it. To me, it kind of paints the picture of somebody who's walking along and you hear this verse. Ponder the path of your feet. It's almost like you need to stop. You need to stop and think about a few things. Ask yourself some questions about this road you're on. Does that sound like good advice? Yeah. Ponder the path of your feet. And let all your ways be established. So there you can see, this is what the scripture's talking about when he talks about being established. Do you see the connection between the path, the direction? Ponder that path that your feet are taking you down and let your ways be established. In other words, find out the direction you're supposed to be going on and then stick with it. And he says in verse 27, once you're established, do not turn to the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. When your ways are established and you have found out from God what he's put you on this planet to do, what the call and assignment and anointing and a grace is on your life, you better rest assured there will be temptation to take an exit. There's going to be a temptation to take a side road. But he said, let your ways be established. Ponder your path. Get on the right one. If you've been on the wrong one, get off it and get on the right one. And let your ways be established. Now, listen to some of these other scriptures. Don't leave Proverbs 4 here. We'll keep talking about it. But the Bible says in Psalm 16, verse 11... The psalmist talking to the father says, you will show me the path of life. The path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So is there a path of life? Yeah. How do you find it? 
He said, you got to show it to me, Lord. He said, you will show me the path of life. Now contrast that with what the Bible says in Proverbs 14, verse 12, and in other places. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of what? Death. So just in those two verses, what have we just found out? There is a path to life, and there is a path to death. Now here's what hit me in a new way about this. Most people live with the idea that there are any number of different ways you can take in this life. So many different roads, so many different paths. And even in our educational system, coming out of high school, going into what we call a higher education, they even call them paths. You're on this path. You're on that path. A, the path to a law degree. The path to a medical degree. The path to a teaching and education degree. They call them different paths. And if you were to look through a course catalog of, of different college courses, yeah, you know, it does look like there's a lot of roads. There's a lot of paths. People think that way about religion. That there's a lot of different paths. A lot of different roads. But you cannot think that way and be a Christian. You can't. Jesus said, I am one of many ways. No, the way. I am, I am a truth of many different truths. No, the truth. The life. Jesus also said that broad is the road that leads to destruction. Why is it so broad? Well, listen to what he said. Many are those who travel it. Why is that road so broad? Because like everybody's on it. It's got to be big for that many people to be walking that road. But what did he say it leads to? Destruction. There's a narrow road though that leads to life. So what hit me about this is actually there's not a bunch of ways not a whole bunch of roads. There's two. Two roads. And based strictly on the names of those roads, which would you pick? If this one's called path to death and the other's called path to life, do you even really know, need to know what's along the road or... Uh, what's the scenery like or what's the, no, just based on the name of the road, period. Do you know which one you want to be on? You show me the path to life. Now with that in mind, go back to Proverbs four and you're going to see that that is what not only this proverb, but many of the Proverbs are all about getting on the right path. I wish we had time to read the whole thing, but, but just back up to verse 10 and read a few verses here with me. He said, hear my son and receive my sayings and the years of your life will be many. I've taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in what? Right paths. So if there are right paths, what else are there? Wrong ones. He said, when you walk, verse 12, your steps will not be hindered. And when you run, you will not stumble. If, what? If you're on the right path. 
Well, by default, what do you know that means about the wrong path? You are going to get tripped up. You are going to be fallen in ditches. You are going to be stumbling all along the way. On the right path, you don't get hindered. On the right path, you don't trip up. On the right path, you don't stumble. But he's going to talk to you about what you find on the wrong one, too. Verse 12 again, when you walk, your steps will not be hindered. When you run, you will not stumble. stumble. He said, take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. Listen to this, verse 14. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Can you see what he's trying to communicate here? Turn away from it and pass on. Just keep passing right by it. Don't go down that path. And this is a father speaking to a son. And it's our father speaking to us as well. Please do not go down that path. Do you hear me? Do not go down that path. Here's the right one. Go that one. Do not go down the wrong one. He's being very emphatic about this. He said, verse 15 again, avoid it. Don't travel on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil. Their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But, verse 18, you know this, the path. Somebody say, the path. The path of the just is like the shining sun that shines brighter, ever brighter, unto the perfect day. The complete day. How do you know you're on the right path? Because the right one's not getting darker. The right one is not getting more confusing. You're not, you're not getting more bewildered the further you go down that road. If you're on the right path, it's getting brighter. Every step you take, it's getting brighter. You're seeing more. You're knowing more. You're learning more. You're growing more. You're getting richer on the right path. This is how you know the right path, the path of the just, it's like the, sh- the shining sun. It's like the sun coming up in the morning and you get a little bit of light and a little more light and a little more light until that thing is straight up in the sky and it is full on bright, no shadows, no darkness. Glory to God. I'm on the right path. Right path. But what do you do once you're on the right path? Stay on it. Do not go to the right. Don't go to the left. Stay on that path. Or you could say, get established on course. Right? Established on course. Now these next verses, we know them and we've heard them. But hear them now in the context of finding the right path for your life. Verse 20. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Don't let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those that find them and health to all their flesh. Now, we've used that verse in, in a good way. I mean, it, it's, it's a verse that tells you how to get healed, how to be strong. But remember, he's talking to him about the path. How do you get on this path? Attend to my words. And I like to put the emphasis there. Attend to my words. What does that tell you? There are other words that you could be attending to. And we know that. Oh, baby, do we know that? Everybody's got an opinion. 
And a lot of people have an opinion about the path you should be on. And this is part of the reason that there's a way that seems right. Well, it seems right. Why? Well, because they said it's good, and they said it's good, and they said it's good, and, and daddy went down this path, and daddy's daddy went down this path, and daddy's daddy's daddy daddy went down this path, and went to this school, and studied this thing, and so, you know, I guess that's what I'm going to do. It seems good. When he said it seems good, he's not talking about that seeming that comes from the, the witness of the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. That's not what this seeming is about. The path that seems good, you can't spell that without S-E-E, based on what you see. And that's the reason most people end up on some other path. But this father speaking to his son and our father speaking to us says, hey, 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 pay attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Why? Because they're life. All those other voices and all those other words you're hearing, they are not life. They do not lead to life. Mine are life. So turn your ear to mine. Keep them in front of your eyes. Let them get down into your heart. Don't let them get out. It's all about the path. And then he says, keep your heart with all diligence. Out of it springs the issues of life. Verse 24, put away from you a deceitful mouth and perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. And that's when he says, ponder the path of your feet. Do you see what he's getting at here? This whole thing is about being on the path, finding the path, staying on the path, not taking the wrong path. Two, two choices, church. Two roads. That's it. That's it. Satan works overtime trying to confuse people, telling them they've got all these different choices they can make, all these different roads they can take. And you can just be any old thing you want to be. Not if you're a Christian. There is a road to life and there is a road to death. And you're not going to have to find the right one and stay on it. So in meditating some of this, one of the things that came to me is, all right, with that in mind, what do I do if I've been on the wrong one? Because we all have. Oh, come on, don't sit there and look at me in that tone of voice. We all have. We've all, at one time or another, chosen a wrong path. So how, if we've been on the wrong one, what's it take to get off the wrong one and on to the right one? Look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Thank you, Lord. Is this helping you? Oh, yes. Thank you, Lord. Another word you could use for the path that somebody's on in life is the plan. We talk in those terms quite a bit, the plan. And these words get thrown around, God's got a plan. Well, that's true. And that's good. Do you know it? His plan is his path and finding that out and sticking with it and staying on it and not letting anything take you off it. That is 
what this life of faith is about. In Ephesians chapter 2, start in verse 1. I love this. Ephesians 2, 1. You he made alive. Thank you, Lord. You he made alive. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. Sometimes we make the mistake of relegating the sermon on resurrection to one day of the year. We talk about Jesus and his resurrection. But resurrection is all through the word. The Christian life is a life of resurrection. Christianity is the only context I can think of where people can talk about death in the past tense. In any other context, once something is dead or has died, it is dead and will continue to be so. But you're looking at somebody this morning who used to be. I'm looking at people today who used to be dead. How can you used to be dead? How is that even possible? Well, I was, but he made me alive. And that's what Jesus in his resurrection did. He completely and totally ruined death forever. Because until him, death was the man. Death was so final. There was nothing beyond it. And that's why people mourned in response to it. Because it was the end. But now, because Jesus ruined all of that, we can trade all that mourning, all that sorrow for the garment of praise. We can take all that spirit of heaviness off. We can rejoice now because death ain't the man. There's a new man. It's the man Christ Jesus who completely ruined death. Not just for the one who died, but for the ones who are left. And you, who used to be, used to be what? Dead. He made you alive. He made me alive. We were dead. How can you be were dead? It's Jesus, man. Don't ask me to explain it. It's Jesus. Well, maybe I should explain it. I'm a preacher. That's my job. But you were dead in trespasses and sins. Listen to this. Verse 2. In which you once walked according to the course of this world. That's the path you were on. And what was that path? Death. It was death. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, the fulfilling of the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Why is the road that leads to death so broad? Because everybody's on it. And you used to be on it. I used to be on it. We were on that path, that path of death that leads to death. And we were dead people walking on the path. That's the path we were on. And he said, you were by nature children of wrath. Listen to these words. Just as the others. Ain't nothing. Maybe I should say it like this. Weren't nothing different about you. Living just like the rest of this world out of that old dead nature and we're just like everybody else and that's the path we were on walking according to the course of this world there is a course other translations talk about a way 
that goes with this world. And no need wondering about what it is or where it leads. We already know, don't we? It's the path of death. It ends in destruction. And that's the one, that's the road you were on, I, were, I was on, all of us were. Until Jesus, bless God. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy. Oh, now we're getting to it. If you were on the wrong path, what did it take to get you off that one and onto the right one? Mercy, mercy, mercy. God who is rich, don't you like that word, rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding, here it is again, riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You were on the path of death. You were walking the course of the rest of this world. How in the world did you get off that course, the death road, and onto the life road? Mercy. It was mercy. God, and he's so rich in it. Rich in it. Why don't you say it like this? God, who is rich in mercy. Come on, let's say it together. God who is rich in mercy. Say it again. God, who is rich in mercy. I like the sound of it. God, who is rich in mercy. Rich. What does rich mean? You ever hung out with a rich guy, a rich lady? It means they got enough. It actually means they've got more than enough. You spend any time with some rich people, you're out together, you're eating together, you're shopping together, and the rich people are constantly like, oh, I got it. I, got it. I can cover that. I got that. I got lunch. Why? Because they got more than enough. Yeah. That's what rich is, more than enough. And is God a rich God? You know he is. You know he is. You know he is. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All the silver and the gold belongs to him. He owns this whole place by right of creation. Is he a rich God? He is, but more rich than any silver, gold, cattle. He is rich in mercy. Mercy. Anybody bold enough or willing in here today to raise up a hand and say, at some point in my life, I have missed it. Just leave him up for a second. That's called sin. You know that, right? Anybody willing to admit, yeah, I have sinned? Leave your hand raised if you'd be willing to say, I have sinned more than once. More than 10 times. Leave your hand raised if you lost count like 10 years ago. Now look at this. How many people we got in here? Just in this room. I'm not good judging crowds, so what, whatever, 1,000, 1,500, whatever's in here right now. And, 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 and leave it raised, leave it raised. For every one of us who have missed it so many times we've lost count. You know what God says? I can cover that. 
Oh, I got enough for that. Oh, I got enough for that one too. Now you take that. If you're getting tired, you can put it down. Multiplied by the seven or eight billion that are on this planet. Multiplied by the billions that have gone before us. Multiplied by the billions that come after us. And never at any point do you begin to come to the end of the riches of his mercy. There is enough mercy. He is so rich in this stuff. There is enough mercy that if every person on the planet right now were a call out, cry out, and ask for it, there is enough mercy in the riches of the mercy of God to get every one of the seven or eight billion of us off the wrong road and on the right one. Like that. Somebody say mercy. Mercy, mercy. God who is rich in this stuff. Rich in mercy. And I get into this and it reminds me of a, of a story in the Old Testament. Turn there with me and we'll begin to wrap it up. Or begin to begin to wrap it up. Second Samuel chapter 9. And this is without a doubt one of my most favoritest places in all of Scripture. Second Samuel chapter 9. Did you notice there in Ephesians he talked about two things that God is really, really rich in? What was the first one? Mercy. But then he talked about the riches of his grace that he would show us in his kindness. In his kindness. When you start talking mercy and kindness, watch out. You are beginning to touch the part of God that makes God God. It's not just something he has. It's something he is. And it's no coincidence here in the New Testament, reading in Ephesians, that in the same breath he's talking about mercy, he's talking about kindness. Now, if you keep reading throughout the book of Ephesians, you're going to get to Ephesians chapter 4, and eventually you're going to read scriptures that tell you, put away anger, put away wrath, put away bitterness with all malice. And he says, be kind one to another, tender hearted. See, that's another word that goes right along with this mercy and kindness. Be kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God, listen to these words, who for Christ's sake forgave you. Now that's the end of chapter four. He goes right into chapter five and says, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Be an imitator. So whatever you want found in you, you're going to have to first find it in him. Amen. And what you're going to find in him is mercy and kindness, tenderheartedness. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, talking about the great love, not just love that God has and not just love that God shows, the love that God is. 
It gives you several things throughout that chapter. Things that love doesn't do. Things that, that, that love is not. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, there are two words. Two words, that's it. That tell you what love is. The love that is God can be summed up in two words. Love is patient and love is kind. So see, we've got to have some mind renewal about what kindness is. When I say kindness, you probably think niceness. And listen, that's a good place to start. Please, I'm, I'm begging, I'm asking you, start right there. But kindness, the God kind of kindness, it goes a lot deeper than just some surface level niceness or niceties. When you look at the Old Testament, there's a word that's used hundreds of times. And it's the Hebrew word hesed. And it gets translated a number of different ways. It gets translated most often mercy. It also gets translated kindness. It gets translated loving kindness. It also gets translated tender mercies. The hesed of God. It's like I said, the part of God that makes him God. It's so ingrained in who he is. The hesed mercy of God. How do you get off the wrong road and on the right one? Mercy. It's the mercy of God. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, it's a short chapter. It starts in verse 1 talking about King David. And David says, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him, say it out loud, church, kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, what are these words about? Earlier in his life as a young man, David made a covenant with his friend Jonathan. Jonathan, who was the son of King Saul. And Saul, after David killed Goliath, Welcome David into his house. And the Bible says that David and Jonathan's souls were knit together. This was a God-ordained friendship. But Saul went crazy. Saul became driven by evil spirits and began to hate David, even threatened to kill him. And without getting into the whole thing, there was a moment in the book of 1 Samuel where David and Jonathan are out in a field and they make covenant with each other. This is like friendship to the next level. Covenant. And what that covenant was, was a covenant of kindness. Literally, Jonathan said that to David. He said, me and you are going to make covenant today. Because I know what's about to happen. I know that God has anointed you to be king. I know that you're going to be king over all this place and all these people. And you and I are going to make a covenant today. And that covenant... The terms of that covenant are that you, David, are going to show kindness, not just to me. And every time he said kindness, it was that hesed, that hesed, tender mercy, loving kindness of God. He said, you're going to show it to me. You are going to show it to my kids. You are going to show it to generations that come after me. We are entering into covenant, this covenant of kindness together today. And he said, and the Lord judge between me and you. In other words, there ain't nothing between us, David, but God himself. This was serious stuff. 
And they made a covenant with each other that day. Well, fast forward. Saul and Jonathan, his son, you, you may know this, they both died the same day in battle. And Jonathan at that point had a young son who was five years old when his grandfather and his dad died the same day in a battle they lost to their enemies and they're now being invaded. And the caretaker of this little boy picks him up and begins to run. I mean, these people are running for their lives. You know what happened? She dropped him. She dropped him and broke his legs. A little five-year-old boy. And because of the injuries he sustained as a little boy, he was lame for the rest of his life. And they ran. They got out of town running for their lives. Now fast forward all these years later, David is king. He's sitting on his throne. He's conquered. He's victorious. And what's he saying? He said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness, that Hesed, for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, at your service. The king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Man, can you tell it? He's got one thing on his mind. Give me somebody to show this hesed, this loving kindness and tender mercy to. And he's, he's, he's almost to the point where he's agitated by it. Give me somebody. Is there not still somebody that I can show this mercy to? Now, what do you know about David? This is a guy... Who got a lot of mercy. This is a guy who was well acquainted. With the mercy of the Lord. He wrote a lot about the mercy of God. And Ziba said to the king. There is still a son of Jonathan. Who is lame in his feet. And the king said to him. Oh really lame huh. Is there somebody that's not quite as lame. I'm looking for somebody not as lame. To show kindness to. It's not what he said. What did he say? Where is he? Don't you like it? Where is he? And Ziba said to the king. Indeed he's in the house of Machir. The son of Amiel. In Lodabar. It's a city called Lodabar. Literally the translation of that name is. No word. No communication. No bread. This is how far away he was. You've heard the phrase. Word travels fast. Not to Lodabar. <laughs> it's so far out and hidden that word doesn't get out there. And so David said, is there one that's not as lame and is a little closer to the house? No. What do he say? King David, verse 5, sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, here is your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you hesed. I will show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you will eat bread at my table 
continually. This is kindness. The first thing he said to him was, don't be afraid. What would this kid be afraid of? David maybe killing the last living descendant of Saul so nobody else has it right to the throne. He's afraid. He's, he's fear for his life. And David said, no, don't be afraid. Why? I'm about to show you some kindness. This is deeper than niceness. What did this kindness do? He said, I'm going to restore to you all the land of your grandfather. See, what kind of condition was this young guy living in? He's out, cast out, living low to bar, living way below the bar, <laughs> out and low to bar, no word, no bread, no communication, lame. Now, you could say he's been on the wrong road. You could say this guy ended up on the path to death and almost like it was no fault of his own. His grandfather and father died the same day. The lady taking care of him, running for her life. An accident occurred. She dropped him. Now he's lame. And all these things that have happened to him that have put him on the wrong road and taken him to the wrong destination, kindness and mercy has reached out all the way to where he was, picked him up out of that place, brought him to the palace and said, now I'm going to restore to you all the land that used to belong to your grandfather. And you are going to sit at my table and eat bread continually. And, and he bowed himself, verse 8, and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Now look at this, verse 9. The king called to Zeba. Why is that important? Because Mephibosheth said, why are, you, why are you doing this for me? Why are you looking at me like this? Why would you look on me, somebody who's such a dead dog? And David didn't even respond to it. Why? Because he ain't looking at him. This has nothing to do with him. Give me somebody to show kindness to for Jonathan's sake. It's got nothing to do with you, boy. This has nothing to do with your condition. This has nothing to do with how lame you are. This has nothing to do with you at all. This has everything to do with the covenant of kindness that's between me and Jonathan. Now, what did Ephesians say? Forgiving one another. Just like God who for Christ's sake forgave you. Did he forgive you? Did he show, him, show you mercy? You know he did. Did it take you off the wrong road and put you on the right one? Yes, it did. And it had nothing to do with you. Oh, that's the best news. It had nothing to do with you. He did that for Jesus' sake. He did that because he loved Jesus. And when you cried out for mercy, bless God, you, you began to identify as one with Jesus. And when the Father looks at you, he's not looking at you. He sees Jesus. Which is why you are wasting your breath coming into a worship service telling God, I'm so unworthy. Oh, why look upon me such a dead dog as I? It sounds real humble, right? It's just stupid. It's just ignorant. Why would you do this for me, Lord? Because it ain't about you. It's about who you are in Jesus. In Jesus. And man, this goes on. Listen to what kindness did for him. The king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, said to him, I've given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. 
and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. 35 people, 36 counting Ziba. Mephibosheth went from living in Lodabar one day when kindness and tender mercies reached out, grabbed him, brought him into the palace, and in a day he went from broke, having nothing, to having 36 servants who were working the land for him, who were bringing in the harvest for him. And not only did he get all that, he got a seat at the king's table. What did that? Talk about being on the road to life. Huh? Talk about being on the road that leads to life and there's life on the road. This is the right path. What did that? Kindness. Tender mercies. Go ahead, guys. Thank you, Lord. Glory to God. What a picture this is of the love of God. Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord, the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he will eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Glory to God. You and I have been given a place at the table. Mercy did that. Kindness did that. But I want you to make note of, of David and his cry, give me somebody to show this kindness to. See, this is more than just bumping into somebody and being nice. This is actually praying and saying, Lord, I'm asking you because you've been so merciful to me. You've been so kind to me. Give me somebody to show that same kindness to. Can I tell you what I'm talking to you about right now? Church growth. Unless and until the Lord gives us some other plan, and I'm sure there's many wonderful things we could do to advertise and quote-unquote market the church and get the word out, and there will come a time, I believe it. But in my heart, in my mind, the key to our church growing, to these seats around you being filled up and we're overflowing, is not our great marketing schemes. It's your kindness. It's you believing you're on the right road and what put you there was the mercy of the Lord and you saying, Lord, help me find somebody who's, on, who's not on the right road. Help, me find, help them find the right road. And the same mercy that was shown to you, the same kindness that gave you a seat at the table and brought you into this place, I believe is what's going to fill this place up. And it's your kindness. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, there are several ways for you to contact us. Feel free to give us a call at 817-577-0180. You can also contact us through the Legacy Studios app or either of our websites. Giving options are available online at pearsonsministries.com and legacychurch.family. If you prefer, you can also text an offering. Simply text LEGACY in any dollar amount to the number 28950 and follow the prompts. Be blessed today. We love you. And remember, you are always welcome here in the house of faith.